Well, again, we were just applying tonight's message by meditating on our future hope, and that is what the Bible refers to as our blessed hope, which is, of course, the return of Jesus Christ, uh, when we will see him and we will become like him, and sin will be forever gone, amen? And so... Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and we are almost to the end of this description of the armor of God, but let's begin reading in verse 10, again, just to set the context in our minds, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. Father, thank you for this privilege we have to own a Bible and to have it before us. The whole thing, not just a piece of it or a verse of it or a chapter of it, but Genesis to Revelation, which we uh, know is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. And so I pray that we would all submit our minds and our hearts and our lives uh, under the authority of your word tonight and that we would listen as if you were speaking to us directly because we know when the word of God is preached, that's exactly what's happening and uh, so that we would respond um, to, to you uh, in worship, in gratitude, and in a life of obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a well-known Bible teacher received the following letter from one of his radio listeners. And this was what this person wrote. Quote, I'm a young man of 23 years And came to Jesus Christ at the age of 19. In that time, I have grown in the word, staggered, fallen down, been crushed, been convinced by a neurotic legalist that I was demon-possessed, been arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol, and gotten a woman friend pregnant. I've begun to regain my spiritual senses. Please send me some ammunition and prayer support. The battle lines are drawn. The trenches are being dug. I'm not going to be one of those caught shame-faced when our commanding officer returns. When the record is being reviewed, I want it written that the soldier in question, after repeatedly disobeying orders and going AWOL during wartime alert, donned his armor, reported back to his commanding officer, fought courageously and fearlessly without batting an eye, and hit the enemy with everything he could get his hands on and inflicted heavy damage in strategic areas to the credit of his patient, forgiving 
commanding officer. That guy knew what it was like to be in the battle. Maybe you can relate to him tonight when it comes to spiritual defeats that you've experienced in the past, as well as spiritual struggles that you continue to face right now in the present. Your ongoing fight against sin has left you feeling down and discouraged and may have resulted in doubt and despair because there are certain temptations, there are certain sins that you have battled with for years, but you've never seemed to be able to gain victory over them. You've gone to God countless times to confess whatever it is, you repent of it, you determine in your heart to never do it again, and you enjoy a season of victory, but just when you think you've finally conquered that sin, that temptation, and you've mortified it for the very last time, that same temptation or sin comes raging back to life with what seems to be an even greater strength and fury than ever before, and you blow it again. And so perhaps you're here tonight and you are in despair. It's frustrating to fall for Satan's same old trick, to get scammed, to get conned, to keep stepping into the same snare over and over again. It may perhaps be causing you to doubt that you've honestly begun to wonder if it's really possible for you to ever gain victory over this particular stubborn sin in your life. Well, God wants you to know tonight that even though you've lost battles in the past, and even though you will still lose battles in the present, you must never lose hope that in the future you will ultimately win the war against sin. Amen? A day is coming when we will be gloriously transformed into the sinless, spotless image of Jesus Christ and will never sin again. I love that hymn, There is a Fountain, and that one line that says, save to sin no more. Wow. By the way, we don't even know what that's going to be like, because all we've ever known from the moment we were born is sin, living in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world, in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed body. And so there's really nothing that we can even conceive of anything we can compare it to in this life of what heaven will be like. But this blessed hope plays a vital role in our present struggle with sin and temptation and the devil, and it's essential to being victorious in our ongoing earthly battle against Satan. And I think this is what Paul had in mind when he referred to the helmet of salvation. We've looked at the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness, the feet that were shod with the preparation for the gospel of peace, spiritual cleats, if you will. Um, and then we noted the, the distinction here from having girded your loins and having put on the breastplate and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, he changes his language, Paul changes his language, says taking up the shield of faith. And then again, notice he says, and take the helmet 
of salvation. So it's as if the, the, the first four pieces of armor, um, I, I should say the first three pieces of armor, uh, are, are ones that you're just constantly wearing. You're, you're just, you got them on all the time, right? And, and like a, a soldier might put down his gun, uh, it might put down his helmet, right? As soon as the battle's on, he grabs that gun and he grabs that helmet and he puts it on, right? This is the idea here. And so he, he comes to this idea of the helmet of salvation. Now, again, he was using the Roman soldier as his analogy. And Roman soldiers in Paul's day wore helmets made out of thick leather or metal, either bronze or iron. They were padded inside with sponge or, or felt, and they had these cheek pieces that would come down on the side to protect their face. And at the time of Christ, a crest with a plume of horse's hair was placed on the top. Uh, you probably have often seen that picture of the bright red uh, plume on top of a Roman soldier's helmet. And they would dye these plumes various colors to allow for soldiers to distinguish uh, between the rank of different officers. And obviously the purpose of the helmet was to keep the head safe in battle from injury against falling debris and against enemy weapons. And so in the middle of a raging battle, the, the sky would be filled with arrows and, and spears and, and the cavalry would be riding through, hacking and chopping with their swords and axes trying to decapitate people. And so the helmet was essential to keep the soldier alive. And so Paul says that we need to take up the helmet of salvation. Now, obviously, this is a broad term, salvation. I don't think that Paul was referring to salvation in general. Um, it's not like you get, you know, saved fifth here, um, if you will. Um, in other words, you put on your belt and then you, you know, put on the breastplate of righteousness and you shod your feet, you get the, you get the uh, shield of faith and oh, then you get saved. Put on the helmet of salvation. You've got you to be saved. That doesn't seem the, the order um, that uh, Paul was, was going with here. We get saved first, right? We wouldn't be able to put on any of the previous pieces of armor unless we were already saved. You're not even in the Lord's army, right? You have to be saved in order to be in the Lord's army for you to uh, be issued that suit of armor, right, that is here. So I think Paul had something in mind other than initial salvation, and I think it's important that we remind ourselves tonight that when we think about salvation, there are three aspects to the doctrine of salvation. There's a past element, there's a, there's a present element, and there's a future element. So the past aspect is what we call justification. This is the freedom from the penalty of sin. Uh, this is the moment of our salvation. We're justified and we're no longer under God's wrath. We're free from the penalty of sin. That's the past aspect. There's a present aspect that we call sanctification, which is freedom from the power of sin, that, that we no longer have to sin. We're, we're no longer slaves to sin. And, and so we are being sanctified, uh, and that is part of our overall salvation. And then there's a future aspect, which we call what? Glorification, which is freedom from the presence of sin. And we've already been talking about that. Saved to sin no more. When we get to heaven, right, there will be no more sin. 
Someone said it this way, we were saved, excuse me, we were saved from the penalty of sin in the past, we are saved from the power of sin in the present, and we will be saved from the presence of sin in the future. So we need to keep this three-dimensional perspective when it comes to salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Salvation has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. And I would submit to you tonight that Paul is referring to both the present and future aspect of salvation, but primarily the future aspect of salvation. Look at Romans chapter 5 for a second. Just turn back in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, and we see this future aspect of salvation. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. This is in the context of God demonstrating his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, that's past tense, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, past tense, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then of course, Romans 8 uh, 29, just turn over a couple pages to the right, Romans eight twenty nine. again, this is the context that we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here it is in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and those these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So again, this is looking to our spiritual destiny, which is secure, our future is secure, rather than our present state, which can seem uncertain at times. Do you ever feel shaky and wobbly in your spiritual life? Uh, it doesn't always feel as secure um, as our future, but, but, the, but the future dimension of our salvation should be a powerful motive and force in our lives, knowing that our victory is guaranteed, that our destiny is secure, should provide us hope while we war against Satan and sin. And whenever we slip up or suffer a setback in our lives as Christians, we need to remember that this is not a total or final defeat, and things won't always be this way. Because through Christ's death and resurrection, we will ultimately triumph over the forces of evil. We will be freed from the struggle, our struggle with sin, and we will spend eternity with God in heaven. And so the fact that we're going to heaven someday where we will be able to enjoy perfect peace and perfect rest in the presence of God forever gives us great hope now in the midst of the battle. One of the newer resources that I've been reading in preparation for these messages is a book by Chip Ingram called The Invisible War, which I would recommend to you uh, to get. It's a really very practical um, exposition of Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, he shares my heart and why we wanted to do this series this summer is because this whole topic for most Christians seems to be 
very nebulous. And, and we just kind of have this spiritualized you know, view of the armor of God, and it's not very understandable and practical and relatable. And so he does a really good job kind of bringing it home and making it very practical uh, in our lives. And so I would encourage you to consider getting that if you want to go deeper in your study of, of this subject of spiritual warfare. Again, it's The Invisible War by Chip Ingram. But this is what he said in his section on uh, the helmet of salvation. He said, quote, if you are a child of God, you have a final, secure, and unchanging hope that no circumstance, person, or tragedy can take from you. It doesn't matter if you're going bankrupt, one of your children has cancer, your business partner has bailed, and your finances are in, in a ditch, whatever. From a human perspective, the worst thing that can happen to you or excuse me, the worst that can happen to someone who's a believer is death. And the moment you die, you're with Jesus. What's so bad about that? Being with Jesus in a perfect environment forever and ever with all of your longings and desires fulfilled in him. Ultimate hope puts everything else in the perspective of eternity. Even if none of my current plans and dreams worked out, if I fell flat on my face and failed, it wouldn't be ultimate. Salvation guarantees it. The helm, that helmet protects me from all my dread of failure and loss, even when the threats come from the destructive plans of a powerful enemy. Isn't that good? Well, again, we're in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul references the helmet of salvation. And so if we want to understand a little bit more about this salvation uh, it makes sense to start in the book of Ephesians. So just turn back to the first chapter of Ephesians, if you're there, back to Ephesians here. And let's just trace a little bit of what Paul said prior to this about salvation. And hopefully this will be an encouragement to you. And I want to make sure uh, that you pick out as we read these passages that may be familiar to most of you already. But look for the hope. Look for the future aspect of salvation uh, as Paul describes uh, our salvation, our great salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purposes who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now don't miss this. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's interesting that word there for pledge, the, the pledge of our inheritance was the, the, the idea of 
getting an engagement ring. And uh, it's as if God gave us the Holy Spirit. When we put our hope in Christ and we responded to the gospel of salvation, we received the Holy Spirit was like was God, God putting an engagement ring on us, which was a promise that he was going to come and marry us, right? This is the whole wedding analogy, the marriage analogy of salvation, which is throughout uh, the Old and New Testament, but we know probably most familiar with is Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over there uh, with me, Ephesians chapter 5, and we know based on verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You have to keep that in mind. Was he talking about husbands and wives or was he talking about Christ and the church? Answer, yes. He was referring to both. And marriage is simply a picture, God designed to be a picture of uh, the, the beautiful relationship that Christ has with us. So verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. For what purpose? What, what was Christ's goal in purchasing us with his blood so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Of course, this is uh, casting our view to heaven because this isn't going to be completely accomplished on this earth, right? Um, all of us will uh, continue to sin to the day we die, but this is talking about when we're presented before Christ at that marriage supper of the Lamb uh, in Revelation chapter uh, 18. We'll, look, we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit later. Um, but again, just to remind us is where is all this going? Where are we headed? Hey, we've been married. we got an engagement ring on our fingers, the Holy Spirit who dwells among us, dwells within us. And that is our guarantee that we are, uh, our, our future is secure. Now turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Again, we're just pulling different principles of Scripture together to kind of round out this helmet of salvation. And then we're going to try to make it real practical. What does it look like practically? But 1 Thessalonians 5.8, again, just we're cross-referencing the words of Paul. Um, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the what? The hope of salvation. So again, it's a little bit, uh, maybe a little color commentary here uh, for the Thessalonians, um, because if you know anything about First and Second Thessalonians, they were probably second only to Revelation the book of Revelation, in the New Testament to give us our uh, eschatology, uh, our, our view of the end times. And so he's talking about uh, ultimately the, the end and the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, uh, the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. So in chapter 5, it's very natural. He talks about this helmet, and it's not just the helmet of salvation. It's the helmet of the, the hope of salvation. He defines the helmet as the hope of salvation. And then in Titus chapter 2, this is where we find that little phrase that you've heard a lot, I'm sure, um, the blessed hope text. This is Titus chapter 2, verse 11, 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So as we live down here on this earth, striving to deny ungodly and worldly desires, trying to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present fallen, broken, sin-cursed world, we're constantly looking to heaven. We have our gaze fixed on that blessed hope, waiting for Christ to come. So when we talk about hope, That's a a critical word here, the hope of salvation or the blessed hope. How does the Bible define hope? Well, you remember Hebrews 11.1, we talked about this when we talked about the shield of faith, right? Last week, Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So the idea of hope in the scriptures is this this confident expectation of something, that something's going to happen. And, and it's really an assurance. There's, a, there's this whole idea of assurance, that we're fully assured that what has been promised to us will come to pass. And so I think when we, we talk about this whole idea of the helmet of salvation, you've got to address the issue of the assurance of salvation. I think it's crucial for us to stand firm against Satan that, that we are sure of our salvation. In other words, that we are convinced that we're truly saved. And, and, and Satan attacks our minds and, and plants seeds of doubt, uh, tries to make us insecure about a relationship with Christ. Because if he can make us insecure, then we are ineffective. Insecure Christians are ineffective Christians. And I think that's why one of Satan's tactics is to get us to doubt our salvation. And I've had over the years very humble, sweet, godly people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. And on one hand, I'm surprised to hear that from them because I would have never in a million years even thought that about them based on what I've observed and the fruit in their life. And uh, one of my standard answers for a person that I've, I guess, watched um, uh, live their life uh, here in in our church. I'm like, listen, if you're not saved, I'm not saved. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're worried about, what you're concerned about. But if you're not saved, I'm not saved. Because I see all this fruit in your life. Now, is there a place for honest self-examination? If you have any questions in your mind about whether or not you're truly saved, should you examine your life to see if, uh, you know, to make your calling and election sure? Absolutely. The Bible tells us to do that. But I think Satan wants to kind of keep us kind of, you know, one foot, you know, on a banana peel kind of thing, not quite sure if I'm saved. And he puts doubts in our minds. And it's the old thing we talked about is, how could you do that? You say you're, you're a Christian. How could you do that? How could you say that? How could you think that? And so when we mess up, right, we, we blow it, he makes us think that maybe we're not really saved. And we get discouraged and we get disillusioned. 
Or sometimes we're tempted to lose heart and, and give up hope and maybe oh, I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin and I can't be saved and you know, I'll never get to heaven. And it's, and it's in those times that we've got to remember that our salvation is secure in Christ. That if we've truly repented of our sin and we've placed our faith in Christ and we're trusting in his death alone for our salvation, that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, but we're, we've, we've thrown ourselves at the mercy of God in Christ, then absolutely nothing can ever happen to us that can cause us to lose our salvation, even our own sin. By the way, a short answer to what is the unpardonable sin, the sin that's unforgivable, it's when you reject the Spirit's witness that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. That's the unpardonable sin. You say, why, why can't you, you know, there's something, you know, people think about that, that means a whole bunch of it. Did I commit the unpardonable sin? Like there's some sin that's so bad that if you commit it, you can never be forgiven, you're going to hell. Well, the only, ultimately, the, the, the one sin that we all commit or could commit or that mankind commits that, that, that dooms them to hell is rejection of Christ and rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness and testimony of who Jesus is. That he is the son of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. If you reject that, there's no other way to be forgiven. There's no other way to heaven. So just to kind of put that in its place, right? What is the unpardonable sin? So the point is that we, we may lose some battles along the way, but we'll eventually win the war because it's already been fought and won by Jesus Christ. Amen? And someday we'll have the privilege of standing by Christ's side, celebrating our final victory over the great enemy of our souls. And when we keep this future hope in the forefront of our minds, it it gives us courage, it gives us strength to keep on fighting, even though we may grow tired and weary and feel like quitting. I love Galatians 6.9. It says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You know why that verse is in the Bible? Because God knew that there was going to be times when we were going to lose heart, and we were going to grow weary, and we were going to want to quit, and we're going to want to throw in the towel and say it's not worth it. And so he put a verse there for us just to remind us that don't, don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time you will reap if we do not grow weary. How about the parable of the talents? Matthew 25, verse 23. We know this phrase, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the, you remember? The joy of your master. And it's that, that joy that motivated Jesus to not grow weary and lose heart, um, to hang in there despite all that he had to go through to secure our salvation. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, this is a familiar passage. You can turn there if you'd like with me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The idea there is getting kind of caught in Satan's snares, right? Being entangled in something, a trap of some sort. And then notice what he says, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Ephesians, chapter 6, it's called The Christian Soldier. This is how he applies this text, Hebrews chapter 12. He said, it comes to this, talking about the helmet of salvation. Look at our blessed Lord himself, the Son of God, here incarnate in the sinful, evil world, with the devil attacking and all the powers of hell let loose against him. He went through with it. He knew what it would mean. He knew that the cross would mean separation from his father, but he went on. What enabled him to do so? The answer is given here in Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That was the secret. He kept his eye on the joy set before him. And therefore, he was able to conquer his enemies. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones exhorts his readers. He says, let us then look unto Jesus. Let us follow his example. As the enemy comes and attacks the mind and the understanding, let us answer him by the blessed hope, the certainty of it, the glory of it, and let us realize that we are in his power and that he will never leave us or forsake us. John MacArthur in his book, How to Meet the Enemy, said it this way, knowing there is an end to spiritual warfare provides motivation for persevering in battle. We will not have to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil forever. Living without hope would be like running a race without a finish line. I think it's interesting that that's the analogy that the writer of Hebrews uses here, running a race. Let us run, right, with endurance, the race that is set before us. And so I think that's such a profound statement here. Living without hope would be like running a race without a finish line. I mean, it's encouraging to know that our conflict with Satan won't last forever. It will all be over soon enough. I was thinking about this, that some of you guys know I've been working out at F45. I'm glad it's not just F. Because when I go there, I know I got 45 minutes on the clock. I can do anything for 45 minutes, right? But when you go to the gym and the guy just says, oh, yeah, I see those weights over there, go over and lift them. So go over there and start doing a bunch of burpees. Go over there and do... And, and they don't give you... What, what especially... Um, helps me is when there's a clock on the wall and, and the trainer is counting down, you know, from 45 seconds. They're like, okay, you got 20. Now you got 10. Now you got three, two, one, right? I mean, that like, like, don't talk to me. Don't make me just do this torture, right? Without knowing that there's, it, it's, it's almost over. And, and so the hope of eventual Eternal deliverance keeps us from retreating or surrendering or quitting. Again, I love Paul's heart in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul was just um, being honest here, just kind of letting it all hang out with the, the Corinthians. 
really in, in some ways almost as a defense of, hey, listen, I'm not, you know, trying to come across as some super apostle here. Let me just tell you kind of what life's like being an apostle. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Here it is. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer man is but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So again, Paul, Paul's solution to not losing heart, not giving up, even though life gets hard at times, was maintaining an eternal perspective. And so you may be going through some difficult times in your marriage tonight. Maybe in your family, maybe financially or vocationally, or maybe something's going on with you physically or perhaps spiritually. And I would just encourage you to, to, to hang in there. Don't lose sight of the finish line. Keep that in view. You're almost there. And, and the reality is sometimes the, the battle against sin and Satan, it gets so fast and furious, we hardly know wh- where we are or what's happening, but, but all that matters is that we know where we're going. That's what matters. And our commander-in-chief has, has already guaranteed the victory, the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't bail out. Don't go AWOL. And so in order to stand firm against Satan, we need to have our minds set on the hope of our ultimate salvation, i.e. our glorification. And I think that's what the helmet of salvation is talking about. Because all of this happens where? Right here. Between our ears, right? That's where the battle really is fought, in our minds. And so we need this helmet of salvation. You say, okay, great. If that's what it means, well, how do I put it on? What does that look like practically? Well, like I've tried to do the last several weeks is just give you some practical bullet points at the end. 
here to, to kind of flesh it out a little bit, make it as practical as possible. So I've got five ways to implement or to take up or to put on to wear the helmet of salvation. Number one, renew your mind. Number one, renew your mind. I know you're familiar with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Again, this is our, our response in light of the, the mercy of God in our salvation, that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And again, 2 Corinthians 10. We've looked at this already, but let me just remind you, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So we have a spiritual warfare analogy here again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations those are thoughts, speculations happen in our, in our head, right? And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought, what? Captive to the obedience of Christ. So again, our minds are the battlefields, and the outcomes of those battles determine the course of our lives. What happens in our, our heads, in our hearts, if you will, will come out in our lives, and so we need to let God's word wash out anything that's contrary to it, worldly thoughts, worldly ideas, worldly opinions, worldly perspective, worldly ideologies, worldviews must be replaced with biblical truth. So I think in general, I, don't, I couldn't think of um, how not to not include that and <laughs> renew our minds, right? Number one, renew your mind. Number two, Middle, more specific, the remaining ones are more specific, I think, to what we've been talking about. Uh, number two is be confident about your salvation. Be confident about your salvation. In other words, don't doubt your salvation. Now, obviously, you have, if you have good reason to doubt your salvation, then examine your life, right, to make sure that you're saved. But the, the point is the helmet makes you confident. Like, if you, if you ran out onto a battlefield without a helmet... Um, you're not going to feel very confident, but you got your helmet on, like, I'm feeling pretty safe here. It's like maybe getting, uh, you know, you, know, you kind of know when uh, you go to the go-kart place and you don't have to wear a helmet, you're like, yeah, whatever. You know, this is not really that. But when you go there and you have to like rent a head sock and a helmet, you're like, oh yeah, this is real. But it gives you some confidence that you're going to get a little crazy in that thing, right? Um, because you got that helmet on. And it's, it's going to protect me if I run somebody off the road or they run me off the road or whatever, but off the track. But the, 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 the point here, be confident about your salvation. I think we just got to be reminded of the doctrine of eternal security. In other words, God's sovereignty in salvation. And again, just some verses here. You can maybe just write them down because I'm just going to read them quickly just to remind us tonight of the sovereignty of God in our salvation. John chapter 6 uh, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. 
for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So if you've been given to Christ by God as a gift, one of the chosen uh, that, that one, of the, one of those who he's chosen before the foundations of time, before the, uh, before the world began, in eternity past, he's given you to Christ, um, Christ will, will never lose you. Um, in other words, it's not about you losing your salvation. Uh, it's, your, your salvation is in the hands of Christ, which is mentioned much clearer in John chapter 10, Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So again, we're secure, right, in the hands of Christ, in the hands of the Father even. We already read Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, that that's, it's all God doing those things whom he called, those he also justified, right? Those he will also glorify. It's all God doing that. We're the ones being acted upon in salvation. How about Philippians 1.6? He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion, will bring it to completion in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, just reminding you of these precious promises about our salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 23 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Again, it's all God's work. 1 Peter chapter 1, we've been studying this book, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You didn't cause yourself to be born again. He caused you to be born again. In other words, if you didn't save yourself, if you didn't, if you didn't earn your salvation in some way, you can't you know, lose your salvation. If you didn't do anything to get saved, you can't do anything to get unsaved. And he did that so that we would obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then, of course, Jude. I love Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So our helmet is most effective when, it, when we treasure what it represents. And I think it represents our future hope, the security of our salvation. So be confident about your salvation. Number three, think about heaven all the time. Think about heaven all the time. This is our future hope, our blessed hope. And there's lots of verses that talk about heavenly mindedness, right? Um, Philippians chapter three, for example, verse 17. He says, um, well, look at just look, verse 20. This is uh, Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject, subject all things to himself. Colossians chapter 3, therefore, if we've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For we have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Talking about our glorification. Again, 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which is war, which wage war against your soul. Remember, you're just an alien. You're just a stranger here. You're just passing through. You're a pilgrim. This is not your home. Stay focused on, on heaven. Second uh, Peter chapter three. Since he's, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared to us yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we need to be thinking about heaven all the time. And that's where we're headed. Number four, remember how the war ends. Remember how the war ends. We know who wins. I don't get, honestly, I do not get the people that DVR the game and are like, don't tell me. Don't, don't tell me, la, 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 I don't want to know. I want to watch it. I'm like, you already know who won or who lost, right? Well, and you're going to sit there and stress yourself out for, for four quarters or whatever, three quarters, or just, just not knowing who wins, if your team's going to win or not. Like, no, guess what? They won. We won. So, yeah, just, and maybe perhaps that's, you know, would be helpful because if you already know who won, you're just kind of kicking back on the couch and your team's down by, you know, 20 and it's the, you know, last few minutes of the game and you're just like, cool, no big deal. Why? Because you already know the outcome. Somehow in the next three minutes, there's going to be an amazing comeback. And, uh, and so you can just relax and not stress out because you, you know who who, who wins? And I love the description of the final battle. This is um, what's referred to as the Battle of Armageddon, when Christ returns and uh, destroys the Antichrist and all the armies of the earth that have raised themselves up against him and against the nation of Israel. This is, um, this is Revelation 19.11. Talk about Talk about a picture of war. This is our warrior, Savior, Jesus Christ. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one 
except, no, no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. By the way, if you don't know how to ride a horse, you better get some lessons. Because if we're in heaven, right, when this happens, if this goes down, right, we're coming back with Christ. I'm just thankful that I will be glorified at that point and horses aren't going to scare me like they do now because they don't have a steering wheel and brakes, you know, so I'll be able to do that. And that'll be fun. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his, his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't have time to read the rest, but we know that the rest of that chapter, he just destroys the nations of the world. He destroys uh, the, 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 the Antichrist. Verse uh, chapter 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then we know that Satan is freed. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together in the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So we're talking about, this is like the final insurrection. Satan's going to take one last shot at Christ and he's going to fail. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end of the story, right? We know who wins. We know how this war ends. And on a number of occasions when Christ was talking about his return, for example, in Luke 21, he said, your redemption is drawing near. Uh, Paul, uh, Romans 13, Romans 13, 11, he said this, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to waken from sleep for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. In other words, guess what? Help us on the way. Whatever you're involved in right now, whatever's got you overwhelmed, uh, whatever is making you want to quit, you feel like I'm done, I can't hold out any longer, I need some reinforcements, guess what? Help us on the way. And all of us in some sense are like a soldier trapped behind enemy lines. And we're going to get rescued one of these days. Maybe after days or months of fighting off enemy attacks, right? That, that soldier trapped behind enemy lines finally gets rescued. That, that's us. Christ is going to come and rescue us. And rather than receiving a medal of honor, our helmet will be replaced with a crown of glory. William Grinnell, who wrote that, this three-volume book called The Christian in Complete Armor, he said this, do you have heaven in hope? It is more than if the whole world were in your hand. 
Earth's greatest king would be glad to change his crown for your helmet at his dying hour. His crown will not get him this helmet, but your helmet will bring you to a crown, a crown not of gold, but of glory, which once on you will never be taken off. Cool picture, isn't it? Helmet off, crown on. And so the last one, I think is obvious, long for Christ's return. Long for Christ's return. Do you long for Christ's return? If nothing else, the the one thing that should make all of us long for Christ's return is that this battle that we all fight every day against Satan and sin and temptation would be over. Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, says, until then, until the Lord's return, Satan will be thumping you and spreading snares to entangle you. Therefore, you should always be crying out, come, Lord Jesus. And isn't that how John ended the book of Revelation? When Jesus said, I'm coming quickly, And he said, amen, come, Lord Jesus. By the way, that's a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And we've been mentioning at the end of every one of these messages that every one of these pieces of armor is ultimately put on through prayer. With all prayer, he says there in Ephesians 6, with all prayer, And petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So what's the prayer to pray? To put on the helmet of salvation? Really simple. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that based on what Jesus did for us on the cross, that we can live with this blessed hope that one day we will be transformed into his glorious image and spend eternity with, with him in heaven. And that this war would be over. Lord, I imagine that there are many in here tonight who feel battle weary. They're done. They're sick and tired of their you know, fight against temptation that they seem to lose maybe more often than win. And so we just pray tonight that Jesus, you would return. And in the meantime, would you increase our hope through the Holy Spirit that you have left to encourage us and to comfort us until you return. And Lord, may we be an encouragement and comfort to one another even now as we have a few minutes to fellowship and maybe discuss the sermon and just in stimulating one another to love and good deeds that this would be another way that, that uh, your spirit would, uh, would minister to us tonight and help us to, to, to put into practice what we've heard. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.